hello, we're back for episode 8 of Herpetological Highlights. My name is Tom Major and joining me as always is my co-host Ben Marshall. This week, Ben, we're looking into the lives and camouflage and crypsis and sort of warning colorations of various different snakes. Yes, the general deception of snakes. They are tricky little customers and we've picked out some of the trickiest from recent literature and we're going to be looking into the various mechanisms they use to avoid being eaten or to successfully eat some hapless prey species. Yes, I mean, that's one of the cool things about all this mimicry is there are two sides to this coin. I mean, it's very much the eat or be eaten, you know, what's the word? Dichotomy, I guess? Back and forth? Whatever, what, contrast? I don't know. I don't know the right word. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Like, these, all of these papers focus on ways in which animals avoid or successfully eat and really that is a really really strong driving force behind evolution as a whole which explains some of the elaborate schemes that we're about to talk about. Yes it can push them right to the very edge. I mean getting right into it our first one is from uh, Fafina Rastigar Puyani Rastigar Puyani Todehagen Ameri 2015 avian deception using an elaborate caudal lure in Pseudocerastes arachnoides, Serpentes viperidae, and that was published in Amphibia Reptilia. Yeah, so a rather crazy looking snake all the way from Iran. Yeah, like cool little paper. It was published in uh, 2015, wasn't it? So it's not, not brand brand new, and um, unfortunately it's not open access. Um, so no. Not, not the easiest to read, but we managed to get hold of it, and um, like you say, these snakes are from Iran, which... I thought it was quite exciting in of itself because it's not often you read anything coming out of Iran with regards to herpetology. No, no, you don't. And I actually, well, by pure coincidence, actually, I saw, I saw this, this lizard somewhere else and oh, I wonder where they found out. And by pure happenstance, they're also from Iran. And this is the toad-headed agama, which if people haven't seen, look up toad-headed agama and look at its, its um, I suppose threat display it's it's you know deterrence it's got these crazy skin flaps on the side of its head it like it looks like uh the predator or something like that from well the film predator absolutely bizarre i've never seen anything like it iran is this is a hotbed for bizarre herpetofauna yeah those agamas are supremely freaky they just look so strange i thought it was fake for a long time that bit coming it out the side of the fake. head it looks really fake. It looks like a bearded dragon with two Venus flytraps attached to the side of its face. <laughs> Lizard of nightmares. Yeah, God. Um, yeah, definitely Iran. Yeah, Iran is a sort of un, like largely unexplored herpetological place, it would seem. And that's why this paper is exciting. For those listeners that aren't sure, Iran's in the Middle East. Um, it's bordered by Pakistan and Afghanistan and Iraq. It's kind of sitting in between those three. Yeah, it's got seas to the north and south as well, which would make you think that maybe it didn't have too hot of a climate, but it is baking in a lot of it. And um, I had a look at the GPS coordinates where they took undertook this study, and it's near the town of Ganjavan, and today it was 44 degrees Celsius there. Um, yeah. I don't know what... Now that's... That's hot. That's hot. And it's a 30 degree drop. It drops to 30 degrees at night, I should say. It's not a 30 degree drop. I don't know what that is in Fahrenheit, but it's it's a lot. Probably like 
100, I don't know. Was it 40 is like 105 or something around there? Uh, okay, so hotter than that even still. Yeah, toasty. But yeah, should we define some of the terms that are used in the title of this paper? Yes, probably. So the title involves caudal luring. So caudal, it just means the sort of very end of the snake. The subcaudal is like below the vent, which is where the snake poos and stuff. So caudal is anything to do with like the, the tail end of a snake. And luring is obviously trying to attract something's attention by tricking it into thinking something is something else. So caudal luring is where a snake uses its tail by wiggling it and kind of emulating an insect or a grub or something. And the prey species comes along, be it a lizard or a frog or a bird, and they think, oh, what's that? I'll have a nibble. And it turns out it's the snake's tail and they get bitten and eaten. Mm, The worst mistake they could ever make, really. And the very last. Probably. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So this particular paper involves uh, a snake deceiving uh, a bird, hence avian deception. Um, And the snake in this study is the Iranian spider-tailed viper, as we mentioned earlier, Pseudocerastes eurachnoides, which is... Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you're going to see a more bizarre uh, case of caudal luring in any snake ever, surely. I don't think so. This has got to be top billing. I mean, these guys have the most bizarre-looking end of the tail. It's got this sort of nodule on the end that's meant to emulate a uh, the sort of abdomen of a spider, and they have little little fronds off from there to basically be legs, and will shimmy this this weird appendage up and down alongside its body. Making it look like it's a little spider running along across across the rocks. It's unbelievable. The mimicry, and it is... actually looks good. Yeah, it's <laughs> unbelievable. It's 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 staggering how incredible this little thing looks. By the way, the words fronds and shimmying are perfect <laughs> for what the tail does and what the tail has. <laughs> the scales along the end of the tail are kind of elongated, aren't they? Yeah. So they sort of poke out. It's actually the, there's a lot of photos of the the actual appendage in the paper and the sort of uh, growth it goes through and it's pretty disgusting actually to look at it by itself but when you it's so bizarre yeah but it's just yeah it just doesn't make any sense but then when you see it in action you just think my word and um yeah they basically had this idea because in the past these snakes have been found to have eaten birds they had this idea that maybe this was a lure for birds but there was never any proof of it prior to this paper so that's what this paper was doing they filmed uh load of these snakes and they were hoping to catch on film the actual tail being used as a lure for birds mm. and when they succeeded they did succeed most importantly is there is video evidence of this occurring where they're moving their tail around to make it look like a moving spider a bird comes down i think in the case of the video which is linked in the um in the show notes i think that was one of the warblers they said they have evidence of them meeting two different types of bird. One is the Ispelain Shrike, and then the others are just a warb- you know, uh, a warbler species, which they can't get beyond species, unfortunately. Which isn't surprising, given warblers' horrible similarity to each other. They all look alike, aren't they? They're all just oh, like... Oh, they do. They're little devils. And, yeah, comes in, has a... It sort of initially lands sort of on the snake's head it looks like or something and it and it the snake you know shifts and the bird backs off goes out of frame and then comes back for the the actual lure and goes for the tail and 
what was it within point two of a second? Yeah, the snakes reacted and the birds been taken, and then it's then it's all over. Point two of a second is faster than the blink of an eye. An average blink of an eye is zero point three to zero point four seconds. So. These things are fast. And that lure is so irresistible to the bird. Like you said, it comes in once thinking, oh, yeah, spider, that looks delicious. Has a little go. The snake, like you say, shifts. It's like sort of half strike. Yeah. and the, but, uh, Yeah, it doesn't look like a full strike, does it? It doesn't. But that freaks the bird out enough that it goes. But then a second back, a second later, <laughs> this, this, all the while the lure is going and the bird's just like, uh, oh, oh, that is a spider. It goes back in. So... Yeah. The lure is so tempting that the bird immediately forgets the fact that it dies with death, tries again, and then inevitably gets murdered by the snake. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, really, really cool. And I was reading in their methods, um, in two and a half years, they were looking for these snakes, and they actually only managed to film one eating once. They got lots of evidence of them doing the luring, but only once did they actually manage to film it. Yes. And the research... I mean, that... Yeah. The researchers were all the while hidden in a tent nearby as well because they were trying to work out whether or not they were luring because there were birds or whether they were just luring anyway. Yes, well, that's a, yeah, that's something you've got to try and work out if you want to work out how effective that lure is. You need that uh, sort of effort to success ratio. Yeah, and they actually did find out, didn't they, that um, they were kind of caught all luring a lot of the time regardless of whether there was birds, but they caudal lured much more often as in the lure itself was moving much more quickly when there were birds over ahead in the sky um, yes. it was moving three to five times faster see a bird think all right let's get that guy down here put the additional effort in and try and make something happen yeah, yeah. i love that makes sense it's cool because it makes it paints the picture of it not just a snake sitting idly in an environment wiggling its tail there's actually some cognition going on there where the snake's like oh hang about there's a bird up there i want to eat that bird I'm going to yeah, wiggle so my ma- tail. It makes sit and wait predation look a little more active, proactive, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. There's actually a little bit more going on, which is cool. Um, but yeah, they found something else they checked when they were catching juveniles up to adults. They caught 12 snakes in all, and um, they got a nice range across like juvenile to fully grown. And what they saw that the, the very new, I think being vipers, I'm pretty sure these are um, live bearing snakes. Um, so when the babies are born, they have no evidence of the weird uh, caudal appendage. <laughs> the spider thing doesn't exist. It's just a normal tail. But then very quickly, like you said, the very end grows into like a nub, which makes the abdomen. And then following that, the the sort of spines start to come out the sides and it begins to resemble a spider more and more. Yeah. And there's the other thing to in, that's interesting to note about that lure specifically compared to other cases of caudal luring in snakes is that it's not a different colour from the rest of the body. No. You see in other vipers and, uh, well, various other snake families, actually, that the tail will be a separate colour, perhaps to make it more obvious compared to the body, if the body's camouflaged and then, you know, you want your lure to stand out so prey items can see it and be encouraged close to it. Um, But there have been studies that looked at colour. There's a Farrell et al., paper in 2011 that looked at this specifically where they painted pygmy rattlesnakes tails um black and yellow and tried to get an idea of whether that affected fitness essentially and they didn't there there didn't seem to be any dramatic impact 
when they recaptured the snakes later on. When you say they were measuring whether or not it affected their fitness, you mean their ability to like survive and grow, right? Yeah, they 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 basically measured growth and size metrics and went on that. So they you know they didn't follow around the snakes and tested how much effort they were putting in or anything like that, which is something they do say you know could have something to do with it. Is the ones with black tails might just have had to try harder. So there might have been some sort of subtle cost there that wasn't being picked up by their methods. But yeah, I mean, it didn't immediately, it doesn't look like the colour is that much of a big deal, which sort of makes sense for this this species too, for for, uh, the spider-tailed viper, because you've got a spider. (laughs) You know, that's such a big deal. Yeah. So do those rattlesnakes you're describing, are they known to caudal lure? Yeah. Uh, okay, so yeah. the researchers yeah, were yeah. checking to see whether or not different colours of caudal lure would be more successful, and so whether they'd evolved to have the best possible colour. Yes, and there's a, there's an even, you know, it's not just limited to rattlesnakes, there's a Hagman et al. 2008 paper that sees the same uh, results in deaf adders. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've got, I've got a little bit about that paper later on, actually, as well. That's great. Hag- oh, good. Those guys were bang on it with the uh, death adder stuff. It's really, really yeah. interesting. Um, yeah, so you you actually mentioned that it was a um, warbler that the snake ate, uh, this mm. uh, spider-tailed viper. Uh, and what's cool... Acrocephalus. Yes, and what's cool about that is that um, warblers are migrants to the area. They don't... They're not there year-round. They come and go. Um, and when the, these researchers looked into the, the birds that they were actually eating, it seemed as though... All the birds that they were successfully fooling with their lures were non non year round residents and were actually kind of transitory species that were migrating into Iran and then migrating out again at different times of the year. So they weren't there all year round to get used to the lure of the snake. Yes, I mean that's what they're. You know, I'm, I'm sort of quite hesitant about making that sort of or agreeing with that sort of conclusion because they've got such a small sample size. Yeah, they kind of they suggested it, that it, was the it, case. It's heading that way, yes. Yeah, and then they also have a they have one case of a hemidactylus uh, persicus being taken a, a you know a little gecko, which I I have no idea if that went for the lure or not. But yeah, they don't know either, do they? It could just be that they're opportunistic. It, it, but what's what's interesting about the idea that they only eat these passerine sort of birds that are coming and going. There's actually evidence from another species, um, which is Bothrops insularis, the golden lancehead. Um, this is a paper by Mark Ezertal in 2012. Yeah. They're a really cool little viper that's only found on an island off southeast Brazil called Quimada Grande. And these snakes rely really heavily on passerine birds. They only actually manage to eat virtually two species, despite the fact that there's a lot of other species on the island. The predominant one that they eat is uh, Chilean Eliana, which comes in late summer and early autumn. But what's what's interesting is that there's actually a wren, which is there all year round, which is incredibly abundant and seemingly doing exceptionally well mm. and never seems to get predated by the snake. So yeah, it's quite a cool example of island biogeography where these golden lancers are relying virtually exclusively on birds which are coming in a transitory way and it's allowed a native species to just proliferate to a ridiculous extent because they're fast enough and familiar enough with the native snake well exactly wrens are pretty fast off their feet regardless of whether they're 
you know, clued into snakes or not, I imagine. Yeah, I mean, you see They're them... pretty nippy little guys. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's probably... I mean, it probably wouldn't take long for the for the uh, golden lanceheads to realize that actually they're wasting their time trying to get a wren and just stop altogether. Well, yeah. It's not, yeah. you know, we've seen that, you know, well, we'll talk later on a little bit about the cognition of snakes, but it's not, I don't think it's beyond a snake to be able to identify that wren and think, nah, I'm not going to bother. No, 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 it's definitely not. I've. Oh, it's annoying because I've, I've forgotten the paper book. If I remember at the end, I'll stick it in the show. Well, I suppose I could look it up. There is evidence that, um, going back to death adders, they're capable of working out differences in frogs and toads I, in Australia. And, and I can tell you what paper that's from. Oh, yeah. You've, you've gone into this. Excellent. <laughs> yeah, it's from um, Hagman again. No, I thought it was a Hagman paper. Yeah, it's from Hagman et al. Uh, that one's 2008, and there's another one in 2009 where they looked at their response to cane toads. Cane toads again. Yes, that's the one I'm talking about. Yes. Yeah. Where they, because the cane toad ven- uh, toxin stays for so long, their traditional methods of dealing with uh, toxic amphibians fail. Yeah. Because the to- toxins on those amphibians, uh, uh, what's the word, degrade after a certain yeah, amount the, of time. Yeah, the amphibians they're used to eating, the frogs they usually eat, yeah. when they catch them, they catch them, kill them with their venom, and then they sit around and wait for a while for the for the poison in the frog to degrade, like you say. But with yeah. the cane toads, they're just that noxious and toxic that you can wait all day, and when you eat it... And it doesn't make a difference, yeah, yeah. all the snakes died. Um, but the snakes know before they go for the frog... Yes. ...what they have to do. Yes. They do, that's really... It, Which is remarkable, they, really. Yeah, they behave differently. And they also, those um, those very same death adders, it was the northern death adders, Acanthophis prolongus, they also actually um, were a lot less keen to caudal lure when there were frogs than when there were lizards. Mm. They'd, they'd caudal lure to cane toads, uh, and they'd caudal lure to lizards, but they wouldn't really caudal lure to frogs. And I think that's quite interesting, because um, it could be that they know that maybe their tail's too fat for the frog to attack, or something like that. Yeah, well, I mean, we'll come back into... Yeah, uh, we're getting ahead of ourselves, aren't we, massively? Yeah, that, that, <laughs> we'll jump straight back into that stuff in the next paper, really, I'm sure. Yeah. But back to... Um, spider-tailed viper. Yeah, back to the spider-tailed viper. We, there is definitely a cost associated with luring and having such an elaborate lure, and perhaps luring species such as shrikes which are quite heavy-duty predatory birds, or can be. Yeah, they've got a serious beak on them, those, those yeah, shrikes. Yeah, well, you, you wouldn't really want to pick a fight if you, with a shrike if you were, you know, didn't have something up your sleeve, like venom or something. Because they do have an example of one of the lures, uh, I think it was on a female, a larger female, that had been quite heavily damaged, presumably, from, you know, a bird getting to the lure and doing damage to it before being hit by the sort of business end of the snake. I like to imagine that the spider-tailed viper was just a bit bored and it was like getting a bit distracted. And then (laughs) the shrike came down and had a little munch and the snake was like, no, my tail. I mean, I presume it was a shrike. I can't imagine a warbler would do that much damage to a snake's tail that swiftly. And those those shrikes, what species of shrike is it? Do you know? This one? Yeah. um, uh, It is the... Isabline shrike, so that's Lanius. Oh, sorry, Lanius 
It's Belenus. Right. Belenus. I'm not 100% sure, but I know that some of the shrikes, because they're, like you say, you know, they're predators in their own right. And um, yeah. some of them in South Africa will actually catch a chameleon and then swoop down and impale the chameleon on a thorny plant as a means of killing them. Shrikes are the butcher birds. Absolutely, yeah. That's just... You don't... Don't mess with those guys. So it's, it's no wonder this, this snake, you know, it's playing with fire. It got its tail nibbled, but who knows? Maybe it also ate the shrike in the end. Um, see, that'd be such an interesting study to do is the sort of relative cost benefit of uh, attempting to lure in shrikes and, you know, vice versa for the shrikes, I guess. How, how big a hit are they taking? Because again, the sample size is so small, we know nothing about, you know, the relative balance in in these snakes diets yeah that's true though they, they did only they did only capture 12 snakes and that can't be much compared to how many are out there yeah yeah but yeah these snakes really cool um pseudocerestes urachnoides urachnoides crazy looking they sort of look like they're covered in lichen don't they they've got you know they're lumpy snakes yeah, yeah they're meant to sort of mirror the gypsum based rock that they live on and in amongst gypsum based rock nice um yeah they definitely do as well they're really really convincing convincingly hidden and they live amongst rocks don't they because a lot of these mm. snakes they were found sort of like in rocky crevices and even the one they actually filmed after it had eaten the bird in a kind of sinister twist it like slid back inside the rocks back to its little <laughs> den it's like mate what a horrible way to go for that bird probably quite quick there it said it stopped moving within like what was it a minute, 90 seconds. Yeah, 90 seconds, yeah. yeah. Whether that means it's dead or just resigned to its fate, or it was dead a lot, a lot, long time before, but it was just having impulse spasms. Well, we don't know, yeah, we don't know what sort of venom these guys have. For all we know, that sort of bird was paralysed in a horrible way, and it was just sort of locked in as it was slowly consumed. Pleasant thought. That <laughs> <laughs> mm. reminds me of the... Uh, just all the snakes that get eaten by king cobras with their like oh savage neurotoxic venom just being paralyzed but aware like locked in well, yeah think, yeah i mean have a have spare a thought for these frogs that get eaten by colubrids whose venom is not even good enough to kill the frogs they just get eaten alive <laughs> or oh, digested to death yeah what a horrible horrible way to go but i love a bit of mother nature <laughs> If that isn't Mate. if that isn't a good impetus to evolve a strategy to combat it, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's motivation, all right. Yeah, God, death by digestion. Oh. Right, so uh, that I reckon we've kind of covered the old uh, Iranian spider-tailed viper quite nicely. What do you think? Yeah, I think so. I think that I think there's a lot of room for a lot more research on those guys. It's quite early days. I mean, there's only two or three papers out about them. Um, I must admit, I did I did actually pull some of the, the natural history stuff I was talking about from another uh, Fatina et al. paper from 2009. Um, but beyond that, there seems to be quite limited limited literature on them so far. Yeah, good excuse for some other people yeah. to get out there and research them if they got the, yeah. got the time and money. Well, time, money, and possible sort of patience to get through politics being in Iran and all yeah I suppose so and to get to this really quite remote location on the yeah the cusp of a mountain ridge in the desert yeah cool so uh, should we move on to the second paper yeah let's 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 okay so this one is another really awesome viper 
Um, one of my favourites, actually. This paper is by Glaudas and Alexander, published in 2017, so hot off the press. It's called Allure at Both Ends, Aggressive Visual Mimicry Signals and Prey-Specific Luring Behaviour in an Ambush Foraging Snake. Uh, it's published in Behavioural Ecology and, Social Bio- and Sociobiology. Uh, this one, it's not open, but you can find it online uh, if you look. In this paper... Uh, another example of aggressive mimicry. So you've got aggressive and defensive mimicry. Aggressive being, I'm going to trick you, kill you and eat you. And defensive mm. being, please don't eat me. Please. I'm this other thing. <laughs> I swear it, I'm this other thing. I'm just a stick. Leave me be. Yeah. Can't you tell by the colours which I am that I'm not that thing you think I am? Um, yeah, this time, the puff adder, which just awesome creature. Bitis ariatans, which, as I learned, Arietto is Latin for striking violently, and uh, they're known for their kind of like lightning fast defense, oh defensive gosh. strikes. Are they? Yeah. Are they? I've got. A, there's a good video in the show notes, as always, because we've got to love a bit of multimedia stuff. It's from good old Steve Backshaw's Deadly Sixty. Oh yeah, Steve. He's got that hot or slightly warm balloon in a pair of snake tongs, and you know, puts it near the uh, the puff adder, and there's this one. <laughs> I mean, okay, yeah, I suppose you, you know, you're probably pissing off this snake something fierce, but the footage, the slow mo footage of this snake, whew, <laughs> it's fantastic. I think Steve can justify dicking around with that snake because uh, lots of children were educated, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, you know, great or good. Yeah, the snake wasn't harmed; it just had to bite a balloon a couple of times. <laughs> um, but yeah, like as I'm sure that video, I haven't seen that video, but as I'm sure it depicts, they are like pretty ferocious in their uh, striking abilities they are small though they're less than a meter long but they're really fat chunky little guys and mm. extremely well camouflaged as well they've got kind of like dark brown light brown blotches um these kind of like wavy white bars which sort of resemble i guess leaf litter and dappled light similar to yes it slightly breaks up the shape of the snake as well doesn't it yeah yeah similar to your sort of um rattlesnakes over in uh, America. Yeah, these snakes, I should, we should say, this study takes place in South Africa, which is the home of the puff adder. Um, they're one of the most widespread snakes in South Africa. They're really, really, really common. Um, really well adapted to what they're doing, these ambush predators. The study site for this study was in Dinakeng Game Reserve, which is 50 kilometers mm. north of Pretoria. The puff adders there, according to the paper, they're active sort of just part of the year from the onset of the rainy season, late October, November to June or July. And the rest of the year, July to August, they kind of just chill. They don't really, they don't just sort of hang out. Don't they? Yeah. they didn't seem to sort of go anywhere or no. do anything special. It's, they just sort of, yeah, it's not like a proper you know. sort of hibernation estivation, but they just kind of stay still or go into a, yeah. a burrow or under a rock and just wait it out, which is kind of what their whole gig is anyway. So they probably don't mind it that much. <laughs> Um, yeah <clears throat> do you want to go into the paper a bit or shall I do you want to do some method stuff or um, would you yeah do? before you do before you jump into the methods um, I did want to draw attention to one of the cooler examples of mimicry they gave um, at the very beginning they gave a paper they, suggest, uh, they cited a paper by Flower in 2011 we talked last episode about uh, different species understanding other species through through calls and stuff like that. And this is the only reason I bring it up. So 
this this flower paper talks about the fork-tailed drongos faking an alarm signal, and then they would swoop down and steal the food from meerkats and pied babblers, and then off they'd go with their food <laughs> and they'd all gotten gains. <laughs> That's so good. Yeah. That was just a really nice example of exactly what you were talking about last last time. So the classic like kleptoparasitism. Yeah. That's really devious though. And to trick a meerkat, like they're not stupid animals. Well not smart as a drongo. I guess you're playing on their um ability to like understand an alarm call. I mean that is pretty advanced thinking by the drongos right there. Yeah. Yeah. Good old ah oh, drongos. <laughs> yeah, they're pretty smart birds. They are pretty special Great. actually. But yeah, the methods. The methods of this one. Yeah, so uh, basically it was looking into um, the lives and habits of puff adders because despite the fact that they're so incredibly um, widespread and seemingly abundant, there's very little known about their ecology. And um, the way he did this, which I've got to say, I've I've looked at camera trap footage myself. Oh, boy. And uh, it's probably ranking in my top five least favorite things to do, um, just below watching paint dry and pulling my own fingernails off. It, yeah. It's not very fun. It can be quite dull. I mean, admittedly, watch it on fast motion, but nevertheless, they reviewed 193 continuous days of footage. Yeah, four thousand six hundred and thirty-four hours. Oh, mate, they must of, of not even like great footage. It's just sort of <laughs> black and white infrared footage <laughs> oh. of, of a snake sitting there. It just doesn't bear thinking about. They must have had some extremely willing. Perhaps they uh, they must have piled it off on some undergrad students or something. They can't have. I'm... He can't have spent half a year of his own life watching this video. Well, maybe, maybe. <sighs> like maybe if it's just you know you do it bit by bit obviously don't do it in in one go and you do it as the study's going along yeah i mean but oh boy yeah yeah not not much fun um so at least there was two of them <laughs> yeah <laughs> or i presume one of them's ahead of the lab or something but yeah yeah so they set up cameras on 18 females and 18 males of these puff adders. And um, in all the hours that they watched, snakes encountered 112 prey. And of those, uh, 24 of them were caught, which is like just over 20% capture success, which, I mean, that seems okay to me. I, I would have actually guessed it would have been a little bit higher, but um, it's quite interesting in itself. Yeah, I don't know how that compares to other um, sort of viper hunting success to be honest i don't and i highly doubt that there's many that actually have been recorded or uh investigated in this level of depth to be honest yeah um but what one thing that they re sort of the the whole big thing about this study was that they actually discovered something called lingual luring which mm. which is known from a few water snakes elsewhere but um never from a viper and what that is is these snakes were actually poking their tongues out and wiggling them around um, and mimicking a worm, uh, much to the detriment of a number of the frogs which were passing by as they did it. Mm, yeah. And yeah, they they were poking their tongues out. Normally, when a snake flicks its tongue, or at least a puff adder, they recorded it in this study. When it's doing it for the purpose of smelling the environment, this like chemosensory uh, smelling, they do it for half a second. But while they were doing it as a means of tricking other animals as this worm mimic, they were actually extending the tongue for an average of eight seconds, but up to 30 seconds. So um, mm. 
that's that's critical to be able to make that distinction so clearly because otherwise you wouldn't know actually how much effort was going into luring and how much was just a snake hanging out you know tasting the air as they do exactly you'd completely skew your results if you couldn't make that distinction exactly and um what they actually found was that this lingual luring was only going on in the presence of frogs and never other prey so Mm. the Again, like we mentioned earlier, these snakes are actually distinguishing between their different prey types because puff adders are quite generalist in what they'll eat. They'll eat lizards, birds, rodents, and even and obviously frogs. Predominantly lizards and frogs, but birds and rodents do feature. And uh, they actually had more percentage success when they were lingual luring than when they weren't. Albeit not to a level which was statistically significant, unfortunately, because of their low sample size. But it definitely seems as though these lingual lures were tricking the frogs yeah and uh like we mentioned earlier this they in their paper they refer to it as context dependent predatory decision making which is quite fearsome fearsome title and uh that's what they were doing they were seeing a frog and thinking oh if i flick my tongue like this that frog's gonna think it's a worm it's gonna come over here and i can enjoy it yeah and not only that there was some sort of indication that they could tell a frog from a frog yes yeah so there was one species that they never they never actually struck at and it was uh cassina senegalensis and i well i was really interested in this for no other reason it's just like okay why not that what makes that frog so special they suggested perhaps it has a has a toxin or something like that so i did a bit of digging and there's a malute et al paper in 2000 um, that suggests this frog had, you know, it, they did a sort of basic antimicrobial search on it. Okay, got your sort of basic peptides that you'd expect to find. But then there's another paper by Chen et al. in 2005 that find a sort of defensive peptide, which uh, basically stimulates the release of histamines, which is the same sort of stuff you'd get if you were having a allergic reaction or if you so yeah basically, even if you were just you, stung by a wasp yes anything yeah it's just yeah so basically what this frog would you know you bite or lick this frog and it can so can cause local pain and and uh paresthesia and what is paresthesia that's the sort of um is that where your throat pins and needles pin, pins and needles oh and then could potentially head towards anaphylactic shock. Then you know there's no evidence of that, you know, yet from that frog. But the the chemicals are there to do it. And the paper was sort of suggesting that maybe I don't think did they I don't think they actually mentioned the toxin for uh, Cassina specifically. That was something I went and found. But they were suggesting it was avoided because it was similar, perhaps slightly mimicking. But probably not actually mimicking. But the f- the snake is recognising it as similar as a banded rubber frog, which is Phironomantis bifasciatus, and that has an even more potent toxin, which was sort of described by Patinowitz et al. 1998, where if you just hold that frog for long enough, you're going to be in quite serious pain locally. Through the skin it can lead to headaches and stuff. Yeah, just through the skin. And that can certainly head to a sort of anaphylactic shock-like 
reaction later down the lines. And there have been, you know, not very many cases, but there was one case of it being quite serious. No recorded fatalities or anything like that, but so, quite a serious reaction to this frog. So what we've got here is a frog mimicking a frog to trick a snake mimicking a worm into not eating it. Perhaps, yeah. I mean, I feel like the frog mimicry bit is quite a stretch. A bit tenuous, but possible. Yeah, because, look, I'm, you know, I've got a couple of pictures of these frogs up, and the Cassina species is a sort of greeny yellow with a cup with three sort of stripes down it laterally and then the other guy is black with two orange stripes down it and they're pretty they're quite distinctive to me anyway maybe at night for a snake well yeah and the other thing is they both walk yeah they're not hopping frogs so that might also have something to do with it yeah i mean because you said you said that one's got green stripes and one's got orange stripes one's got sort of yeah is green with darker stripes on the on the sort of greeny yellow yeah depending on your perception of color i don't know what puff adders can see but it might well be that they see those things to be virtually the same maybe or maybe it's not even worth you know maybe that's enough of a mimicry it's not worth the risk it's a walking thing with stripes better not touch it I don't know how sophisticated their uh, their ability to differentiate frogs is. It really, um, really interesting though, because yeah, it really does give you the impression of these snakes as they're thinking about multiple things. Maybe not at the same time, but like it, it, it could well be that it's quite, you know, not even necessarily complex decision making, but it, you know, they've got a binary idea, and different things will trigger one or other of a reaction, which is quite cool. Yeah. No, I, I would highly recommend people, if you can get a hold of the videos showing, you know, what's actually happening, what's this paper's talking about, go have a look at them. I don't know if they're openly available, you have to have access to the paper to see them, but I had a had a sort of, you know, look at a couple, one with a female puff adder, link, successfully lingual luring this big red toad that just sort of hops over, as soon as it hops within distance, Bam! Snake takes it in an absolute instant. Yeah. It's phenomenal. There's a there's a really good YouTube video actually, which um I've put on the show notes as well, which is where uh, Xavier Glaudas, who's the lead author of this paper, mm. he um goes into quite good detail. It's like six or seven minutes long, all about how he started off researching these snakes and what his research was, and then there's a few videos spliced in of the the snakes catching frogs with this lingual luring. Um, oh, I hope that's yeah. I hope that's we're talking about the same the same videos because they're. Although black and white and slightly blurry, yeah, you can see what's happening. Yes, you can. And it's uh, yeah. The last one I looked at was just the uh, Casino Senegalensis just walking along, just quite happily. Puff adder in the background, totally fine. <laughs> it'd be, just walks off into the distance. It'd be great. Little walking frog. It would be great to know <laughs> for for definite that that frog 100% knew the death adder was there. Uh, Puff adder, excuse me, was there and was just like nonchalantly strolling along. Yeah, I don't care. You can't touch me. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm poisonous. <laughs> uh, that'd be awesome. Um, yeah, so we did mention a little bit. Well, we talked. We talked about their um, lingual lure, this tongue lure. But what we haven't really touched on is actually in this paper they also talked about a caudal lure. So again, yes. they also lure with the tail. So puff adders are just a big bag of tricks, really, aren't they? They got this 
they got lures at both ends, hence the name of the uh, name of the paper. Well, that, yeah, I mean, the, the guys were saying this is the first case of two forms of aggressive mimicry in one animal. Yeah, in one vertebrate, I think it was. I'm not sure. Yeah, because insects. Oh, I don't. Hey, insects. I don't. Oh, I don't know about things that don't have backbones. Insects do all kinds of mad stuff, so we can only speculate oh, that there's an insect with ten different types of uh, aggressive mimicry going on all at once. Yeah, some sort of like super jack in the box spider. Or something. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't even be surprised if that was an actual thing, and if it was actually called a jack in the box spider. <laughs> Uh, yeah, but I can't understand things without backbones. I'm not going into it. No, I don't actually. I just I denied their existence at times. <laughs> so yeah, we were talking a little bit earlier on. We touched on this uh, these death adders, right? Yeah. Um, and their ability to kind of decide based on what the prey was whether or not they were going to use their caudal lure. Lizards, yeah, let's do some caudal luring. Cane toads, yeah, we'll caudal lure those despite the fact they're terribly poisonous. Um, but frogs, no. <laughs> frogs, no. Yeah. No point. Um, a similar thing was actually found in another paper by Reiser and Schuett, um with sidewinder rattlesnakes, Cretella cerastes. They would actually mm. uh, caudal lure more when they saw a familiar native lizard, so a lizard which is occurring in sympatry with them than when they saw an allopatric lizard which is a lizard which they ordinarily wouldn't encounter in the world that had a different range this was done in Hmm. in lab setting so again that kind of suggests that these sidewinder rattlesnakes they see a certain type of lizard that they're accustomed to seeing that they've co-evolved with and they're like i'll give my tail a shake for that whereas when they see these allopatric lizards they don't recognize them they don't quite know what their game is and they think nah i'm gonna leave it and not lure Um, which is Again, evidence of some kind of slightly higher order thinking. Yeah, that's I love that because you you are somewhat getting into the mind of the snake. Yeah, it, and understanding how it's seeing the world. It makes snakes a lot more easy to empathise with when you can actually think of them in this context. Yes, but one thing these authors, Glaudas and Alexander, mention is that they don't think the death adders would necessarily use their caudal... Sorry, the puff adders would use their caudal lure. <laughs> See, it's, it's easy. It it's easy to get confused. Man. People need to be more inventive with their names. Uh-huh. Um, these puff adders, they, they're because they're so short and fat, their tails are actually kind of these grotesque little stubs. And uh, it could be that they're not really worth them wiggling them in the presence of most things because they'd be too big for them to eat. Because Ah, uh, right. Yes, so it's... it's... Maybe not as sophisticated if they're just going by size. Yeah, but because um, mm. I was like, well, hang about. When I read that, I was like, hang about. Puff adders, they're chubby. And death adders, they're also really chubby. And I was like, a death adder can't have a long, thin tail. Surely not. But actually, I Googled it and blindly, they do. They, they're this little fat <laughs> snake. This like blob of a snake. It's literally like a forearm with like a piece of spaghetti attached to the end of it. And it's like wiggling around and all sorts of stuff worth searching on youtube actually i'll find a video and bang it in the uh in the show notes for the death mm. adders just for a bit of comparison because their tails are completely different and um extremely convincing but also on the note of them having a lure which is maybe too big in the puff adders case interestingly the death adders really only caudal lure often when they're juveniles so once they get bigger they're not so keen on the caudal luring, which could be related to the fact that their lure gets too big, or maybe they just grow out of it. I don't know. But Or they have to shift what prey they're eating, ah, and yes. the prey that's larger is less 
you know, susceptible to being lured. Could... So it's just sort of lost on the way. Yeah, perhaps they switch over to, uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure what their, uh, what their prey is when they're adults. It's probably out there in those papers. Oh, I'm sure it is. I've did... Hagman, Hagman and, and Co. have done a lot of work on the uh, Death Adder stuff that could give you an idea. Yeah, and even sure. even more than them, there's loads and loads of stuff out there in uh, on caudal luring. There's um, all sorts of stuff. There's a good paper by um, Nelson et al. in uh, mm. Animal Behaviour, which looks into the uh, psychology of the receiver and how that influenced the evolution of the design of the Death Adder's caudal lure. Um that's worth a that's cool. That's worth a read. It's a bit heavy to get into, but that's worth a read if this is something that you're interested in. Very cool. Excellent. Yeah, bang. I reckon we've done those little puff adders justice. Have you got anything else to add? Um I suppose the only thing to add is that they weren't entirely satisfied with uh being able to tell how successful the lure different types of luring was. You said that the lingual luring they didn't have a big enough sample size to really conclude on that and now it's the same with the caudal luring which you know both these two papers we've talked about really just scream for more just more studies to be done just a greater quantity of uh of videoing and and quantifying how how successful the luring is i think that'd be fantastic and then marry that up with diet and see how that changes across space with different abundances of, of prey species and yeah oh, there's so much that could be there's so much that could be done it'd be so much work <clears throat> especially for something that has to be done via video it would be really cool to see if there was but wow it would be really cool to see if there was a spatial difference in the caudal luring of an individual species based on yes, the prey exactly. species which it encountered in different parts of its range like i would love to see something like that yeah because that would always be like snake culture. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it'd well, they, be fantastic, wouldn't it? I suppose culture is defined as something which is like passed on by individuals to individuals. So it wouldn't be culture, but it would still be really, really cool. Oh, it would give a whole other layer of depth yeah. to some of these widespread species. Yeah, I think it'd be great. Yeah, jolly good. Just don't want to have to watch a million hours of video to discover it for myself. Yeah, well, that's that's a trick, isn't it? That is a trick, <laughs> and I can't honestly think of another way to do it without reviewing thousands of hours of video. No. <laughs> well, we'll leave it to someone else then. <laughs> <laughs> Sack that off. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, it's really good. Right. Should we go on to this? Well, a change of direction, really, from vipers to yeah. elapids. Well, we talked about elapids anyway in the Death Adders, but a paper on elapids. Yeah. So our final one is a bit of a change from aggressive mimicry to a slightly different type of mimicry. And it is by Vavindran, Deepak, Smith and Smart, published in 2017 in Herpetological Notes. No, sorry, Herpetology Notes. A new colour morph of Calliophis bibroni, Squamata elapidae, and evidence of Mulian mimicry in tropical Indian coral snakes. Yeah, so as you said, that we're we're switching over from aggressive mimicry to defensive mimicry, which, as we said earlier, yeah. as opposed to it being, you know, come over here, I'm going to eat you. This is look out, I'm either poisonous or I taste bad or something else. You can't see me. I'm a leaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. You can't see me. I'm a leaf or. 
I'm going to bite you and it's going to be really lame for you because I'm really yeah. poisonous. And the name for these kind of warning colorations is aposematism. Mm. Yeah, so that's sort of the general catch-all term for coloration, which d- provides a warning. You know, the classic example which works on us is wasps and bees. They're black and yellow. Yes. And, you know, you only have to glance in the direction of an insect, see that it's black and yellow, and approximately 75% of people will start waving their hands around like a lunatic. Yeah, running for the hills. Yeah, exactly. Setting fire to buildings. <laughs> yeah, or just like... Just general general anarchy will ensue. Yeah, or just like trapping it under a pint glass and <laughs> keeping it captive for the duration of your stay at the picnic table. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's better than whacking it one. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the snake in question for this study, as you mentioned just now, is uh, Calliophis bibroni, uh, named after someone called Bibron. Bibron's coral snake is the common name which unfortunately is going to be a theme for uh, the coral snakes we're going to talk about. They're just named after various herpetologists, Yeah, I assume. Yeah, they are, aren't they? What annoys me about that is that this Bibron, I don't know who this person is, but there's also snakes the other side of the world named after Bibron. There's Bibron's bevel-nosed boa. Whether or not that's still a yeah. species of Candoya the, in the old uh, Solomon Islands and roundabout. Um, I don't know. We, you know, we're suckers. We're suckers for descriptive names. We are, and these are the opposite of descriptive names. I don't want to. Yeah, whatever. There are better names out there. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I don't know what you'd call this one. Similar to such and such, Aroni. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, s- broadly speaking. There's um, two types of defensive mimicry in snakes. Good. I was, I was hoping you were going to... That's exactly what I was going to go Yeah. Into. Good. Um, one of which is Batesian mimicry, uh, which is where a snake that's harmless or delicious mimics a snake which is not harmless or is not delicious. Your classic example is the milk snakes of the genus Lampropeltis, looking like American coral snakes, which are incredibly venomous. I I think I might have an example that beats that, though. No, you don't. Yeah, I do. Go on. I mean, if I were to tell you... Well, just say the name. Uh, Pseudodynasties. Pulverensilas. Yeah, boy. Yeah. Okay, I was going to talk about this later. Great, great effort. Go on. <laughs> the Mock Viper. The wonderful, wonderful Mock Viper that can shift their pupil from a round, sort of, you know, generic snake pupil into... A elliptical pupil that looks exactly like uh, the Malayan pit viper that they live alongside. Yeah, Calisalasmerodostoma, my absolute favourite. Yeah, yeah. So those snakes are so banging, and I was so disappointed that when I was in Thailand, I didn't ever see one. But uh, but they do double, they, don't they? They don't just have that eye thing, which is just crazy. They also have the the head, which kind of looks like a pit viper anyway. Yes. Yeah, really, really awesome snakes. And deta- details of the Mock Viper is uh, Silver et al. 2016. Yeah. I, That's where I was grabbing that from. I actually uh, put up a thing on Facebook about that relatively recently as well. So have a scroll down on Herp Highlights' Facebook page and you'll find a link to a um, really good New Scientist article where they discuss that finding. Mm. And actually the paper itself in Frontiers is awesome too, isn't it? It's open access. So go, re- you can get it. go and read it. It's there. The pictures are brilliant. Yeah, so like you say, oh, where were we? We were talking about Batesian mimicry, yeah. Yes. Viper, archetypal Batesian mimic. The other type... Not, yeah, well, I'm not sure about archetypal, but... No, it's not archetypal. Probably the coolest. What's the... Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Um, 
Whereas the other type, so Batesian mimicry, harmless thing looking like non-harmless thing, Malarian mimicry is where a very non-harmless thing, so something which is quite dangerous, looks like something else which is quite dangerous, thereby doubling the amount of dangerous looking things there are out there (laughs) and uh, making it more likely that the predators which prey on them will be familiar with that particular dangerous appearance and not eat them. Mm. Yeah, basically like fewer fewer individuals have to be sacrificed to predators before the predators realise, ah, those things with the orange bellies and black and white stripes are actually quite bad. Yes. So, yeah, this study took place in the Western Ghats. We were in the Western Ghats last episode as well. Last week, yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) wonderful place on the west of India, mountains and wonderful endemic species. Yeah, it's like the eighth most biodiverse place in the world, something like that. Don't know who worked that. I wouldn't be surprised if it was. Um, But yeah, incredibly rich, biodiverse, lush, basically a herpetologist's dream. Mm. And um, yeah, so what they found out in this this paper, basically, um, normally, Bibron's coral snakes are sort of kind of a play grey grey colour on top with uh, an aposomatic orangey red underside, which is a warning to predators if they flip over. Mm. but one of the authors of this paper, uh, Dilip Ravindran, was strolling around collecting snakes in um, the Western Ghats. And he, f- he caught a snake that he thought was Calliophis casto, which is Casto's coral snake, another inventive name, uh, which is a coral snake. <laughs> Terrible, I know, isn't it? But um, yeah. another coral snake with bright orange sides. And it also has kind of orangey bits on the top and sides of the head. But when he got back to the base and looked at the scalation of this snake, he realized that actually the scalation was really, really close to that of Bibron's coral snake, which are usually just gray on top. And in doing so, he made the discovery that actually that was a Bibron's coral snake. It simply looked like a Castos coral snake. And in that mm. area that he was in, they are actually mimicking Castos. Um Yeah. They did then some genetic investigation and they found out that, yeah, absolutely right, this is a Bibrons that looks like a Castos. So what's cool about that is that there are two colour varieties of Bibrons, which we call uh, colour polymorphism. They basically have multiple different uh, appearances depending on, well, all sorts of different things. But that's quite unusual for a uh, for a venomous mimic to have that. Sorry, it's quite unusual for an aposomatic snake to have that. Yes, because you would have thought that whatever the optimum coloration would prevail yeah. and just be from beginning to start, job done, it works. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so as if that wasn't enough, the Bibron's coral snakes actually take their aposematism and mimicry to an entire another level. Um, quite literally, as it turns out, there are two levels. Um, they mm. actually change as they grow. Um, so when they're young, they are kind of like red with a few black bands going crosswise across the top of them. And they look like uh, another coral snake called Sinomycurus mcclellandi. Guess the common name. <laughs> um, something about McClellan's <laughs> coral snake? Yeah, so McClellan's coral snake. Um, Dang. Yeah. But then they switch as they get older. It's called an ontogenic color change. So they change as they get older. We talked about this with the um, Komodo dragons. Yes. And they switch their coloration from red with black bands to 
grey on top with orange sides and begin mimicking the Casto's coral snake. So in short, the Bibron's coral snake begins mimicking McClellan's coral snake and then, as it gets older, changes its mind and mimics Casto's coral snake, seemingly because McClellan's coral snakes don't get as big as the Bibron's coral snakes. So when they get too big to be realistically considered to be a McClellan's coral snake, they switch over and copy the Casto's coral snake. So, but what's bizarre, really, or actually might not be the case, but Bibron's and McClellan's separated by over a thousand kilometres. That's a long way, isn't it? They're not even like close to being St. Patrick. Yes. Which led me down a wonderful rabbit hole. Because <laughs> I was like, what? Oh, that makes no sense. How can they mimic something they're not even... What? It's the birds. This doesn't... Yeah, well, that was my first thing. Is It must just be an animal ranging all over that space, and therefore it can carry the knowledge back and forth. But I wasn't particularly satisfied with that answer because, well, I thought of it and I wanted something a bit more <laughs> thorough than me just being like, oh, yeah, it's probably just birds. Um, so there's a paper by Fenegan Mullen in 2010, which is a review paper where they cite in, cite in the one we're talking about. And that goes into all these different examples of where uh, this sort of sympatry, allopatry, and the mimicry in the two different zones. Allopatry is when the species don't live in the same space. And, um, you know, because the, the sort of classic thought would be a mimic would work where there are other mimics to back up, you know, to lend credence to its mimic, to, to being the same. Because if you're just a mimic that's brightly coloured, but there's no cost to a predator for eating you, you're just going to be brightly coloured and you're going to be eaten, right? Yeah. You're just not going to blend in. So you'd, you'd think there'd be some cost. But they detailed several ways that mimicry can exist outside of sympatric, you know, sympatric zones in these allopatric areas. And the first is that, well, we just don't know that the mimic is also venomous or toxic in some way. So essentially, it's an unrecognised case of uh, Bullerian mimicry. Okay. With their example was uh, viceroy butterflies looking like other milkweed feeding butterflies that are toxic because milkweed produces toxins. And then later on, it was found that viceroy's butterflies also are toxic. <laughs> so, you know, the mimicry was just helping out everybody there. Um... Another one is that predators aren't even learning about the mimicry. It's just this innate uh, reaction to certain colours or patterns that put predators off. I mean, we can go all the way back to, what was that, episode one, where we talked about chimps and monkeys' innate, you know, just hatred for snakes. Mm, anything so serpentine. Sort of inbuilt, yeah. Freaks them out. So there's, there could be something more uh, sort of basal, I guess. In these, in these predators' decisions to attack or not. Could be a weird sort of case of convergent evolution, where, okay, they're not actually sympatric, but they're just sort of heading towards the same sort of coloration because it tends to decrease predation for whatever reason. You know, all these, re you know, all this stuff can also be happening in tandem with each other. They're not mutually exclusive. So it'd be incredibly hard to unpick exactly which one is driving it 
because they're all possible. So in examining the sort of malarian mimicry in isolation, you're kind of like massively underplaying the complexity of the situation, really. Well, yeah, perhaps, because there's so many different ways this could have come about because we have examples where just straightforward mimic and model coexisting. You know, there's so many exceptions to that. Mm. And it's also just, you've also got to deal with it over time because, of course, the natural world is not stagnant and steady. So ranges of these species are changing back and forth and larger and smaller. And mimics might be sort of a remnant of previous ranges where they did overlap or there's still current gene flow in and out of different areas of their range. Mm. So, yeah, still maintaining the mimic outside of sympatric areas. Yeah. I mean, I was thoroughly satisfied after reading this review. It's like, yeah, okay. There are plenty of reasons how this could, <laughs> why this could happen. Not just wide-ranging predators learning a trick from one area and applying it to another. Yeah, wow, there's, there's so many selection pressures possible. Yeah, yeah. It's really, really cool. I mean, it doesn't even, you know, they sort of finish up by going into how these sort of pressures can even push speciation in theory, where if, like, being a mimic's good and being sort of cryptic is good, hybrids between the two might be disadvantaged, and therefore it might sort of push these two different selections in opposite wow. directions. so polymorphism turns into speciation. Well, perhaps. They didn't. They, they said there haven't actually been any examples of that happening, mm. but there's no reason to think it's not possible. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I thought that was, a, that was a great paper that had loads of sort of examples and detail in it and just broke it down rather fantastically yeah that's what you need in a situation like that just like yeah a step-by-step guide to the incredible complexity of what's going on um back to the calliophis bibruni yeah this, yeah this please I, I know i went off on a bit of a... <laughs> I, I digress yeah uh uh yes it, so sorry one final thing on the the bibruni like we were just saying about polymorphism um mm. it's unique in coral snakes not only because it demonstrates polymorphism, so the normal morph and the Castos coral snake appearance, whilst being a malarian co-mimic, but also that these two colour morphs are sympatric, so they're found in the same place. So that kind of ties yes. back into what you just said. Um, these two things are going on. It'd be really interesting to know whether or not there's ever, like, uh, they lay eggs, don't they? Coral snakes? Lapids? Um, presumably yeah I think so don't know um, it'd be really interesting to see if there was ever a case where there was like a clutch of baby coral snakes where some was, were one morph and some were another I think that'd be really cool yes because you get that in like um, I know I know because I've got one in my house the uh, Lampropeltisthei the variable king snake from America yeah they have clutches which contain snakes of all different colours so you can get like red and orange banded ones which are obviously mimicking the um uh coral snakes from that area but then you also get plain black ones you get gray ones um seemingly massively differently adapted for different strategies uh in terms of their camouflage and yet all from the same clutch so well exactly that's what sort of also makes it so difficult to unpick what's driving that because those guys seem you know, king snakes 
do mimic or you know king stakes outside of the model that they're replicating mimicking is range you know that there, there are allopatric examples of king snake mimicry so they they have some of those <laughs> some of those factors i talked about playing in there somewhere yeah utterly utterly bizarre i'd, yeah. I'd like to yeah wow we'll keep we'll keep tabs on this area of research i'm sure there's quite a lot going on oh dude, yeah i mean keep <laughs> Pick a bit of research that doesn't have a lot going on. Like yeah. if, you, if if you want the detail, it's usually there. Yeah. Um, and this was only a note as well. This this paper is only a note in herpetology notes, which seems crazy. But yeah, yeah but I I think it can only be a note because there's no statistical of... analysis and stuff, right? Yeah, not not that much stats, and also it's quite hard. Like I said, it's it's hard to pin down that it is truly mimicry yeah like yes it yes it you know it does look like it i'm i'm fully agreeing that it does look like it yeah but, what... but i i don't know how you can unpick that from other other just sort of coalescing pressures hmm. yeah that's true i mean for, i mean the other stuff is stuff like thermoregulation is quite heavily impacted by color yeah that's very true and and sexual selection and you know there's all all these different factors coming into it yeah and then you've got snakes which are kind of equal parts well like you know the um the bibrons is a good example of this where you can have both camo- color for crypsis camouflage and yes. aposematic color existing on in one side. yeah because yeah. they just they, they they do it behaviorally so while on the top they're playing gray and hard to notice as soon as they feel threatened they flip over display an orange underside and bang they've got aposematism as well um yeah so. <laughs> very difficult to unpick and i think that's why it's a note because it's it's there's a lot more to be done yeah it's probably really hammer that down yeah yeah it's meant to trigger conversations like this i suppose (laughs) well yeah absolutely i mean it 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 is a fascinating case of mimicking two species at the same well at different times but one species doing two that's that's quite remarkable yeah it's really really cool well um I think that leads us nicely into our uh, special segment, don't you? Are you talking about species of the bi week? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Species of the bi week. Um, and this week, for everyone's listening delight, we've got a snake from a genus which I am entirely unfamiliar with, if I'm completely honest. Yet it is a, possibly the second largest genus of New World colubrids. Oh, <laughs> if that isn't a claim to fame. Um, <laughs> this paper is by Koch and Venegas in 2016. A large and unusually coloured new snake species of the genus Tantilla squamata colubridae from the Peruvian Andes, published in Pier J, uh, which is delightfully open access. Super open access. Yeah, the whole their whole thing is open access, isn't it? So yeah. if you want to read this... Look it up. Um, yeah, just last look year. The, just look at the pictures if you want. Exactly. You can go, yeah. You can just look at the pictures and see exactly the snake which we're talking about. Mm. So this new species is, as the uh, title would suggest, is from the Peruvian Andes, um, the dry forest in the north of Peruvian Andes. Mm. And it's in the species they're describing here is called Tantilla chiasmantoi. Yes. I couldn't work out where they got that name from. Could you? 
Yes, the species is dedicated to winning uh, Tishia Moto in recognition of his support of nature conservation and taxonomic research throughout the bio <laughs> the biopat initiative. I suppose it is. That's a direct quote from the paper. Ah, uh, okay, cool. I so. Yeah, the reason you couldn't work out what it meant is because it's somebody's name. Yeah, I did trawl the paper for such a sentence, but I couldn't find one. <laughs> oh, it's right at the very end. Oh, is it? Oh, fair. Yeah. Um, cool. So there we go. It was named after someone. Uh, still, re- really cool description. And, well, the one thing which jumped out at me about this new species was that the female and the male are different to each other, which is... As we know, called sexual dimorphism, multiple morphs. Or sexual... dichromatism. Exactly, it's sexual dichromatism, which got me really excited yep. because this takes us all the way back to episode one, where we discussed our Ayatilla animala, which is the mm. w- whip snake with um, green. Which was it? Which way around was it? Was it green females and brown males, or brown males and green females? I can't quite remember. I think it was green males and sort of grey brown females, because the females were bigger, were they not? Yeah, the females were definitely bigger. Um, but yeah, this time, in the case of uh, our new species, Tantilla chiasmantoi, male and female are both yellow and black banded. Um, this is the details of their sexual dichromatism. But um, the female has a plain tan ventral, so their underside is plain, while in the male, the bands continue onto the underneath, so it's banded 360 degrees around the snake banded belly as well um mm. they thought maybe it was because that the the male they'd caught was a juvenile and it was another example of their ontogenic color change where they change as we, they get older that we mentioned earlier but um yeah. as it turns out the male they caught was actually sexually mature when they examined it so it is the case that the males and females have different coloration mm. which which is fascinating i mean why would it why would the males need a banded underside yeah, Ooh. that's uh, maybe it's unless, uh, maybe it's to yeah. do with um, this is just a wild flight of fancy, but maybe it's to do with the fact that when they're mating, the male's underside is exposed. Yeah, maybe, maybe I was sort of I was thinking that if they're moving around more, mm. there's just a greater predation pressure on them. Ah, uh, and it's maybe it's costly to produce that that color. Yeah, so the so the females have gone a cheaper a cheaper route if they don't need to move around as much. Maybe, yeah, it could be that too. Um, or maybe when the females are laying eggs, if they do lay eggs, I don't know if they do, um, they turn upside down. To be more cryptic. Wow. <laughs> Whoa! Mind that noise you heard in the background was my mind exploding. I don't think that's a, I. I that would be so weird. Yeah. Hey, it's cool anyway. No one knows why. So, yeah, it's, that's really interesting. Um, another cool thing about this paper was that um, I think we, <laughs> we've we done enough sort of uh, postulating now, haven't we? Um, <laughs> what? No. No, more? More postulation. Maybe it's because... Uh, <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, the other cool thing about this paper was that there were some really cool CT scans of skulls and hemipenes of the... Um, they compare the new species and similar species of Tantilla um, via means of CT scanning. So getting really high resolution imaging of their skulls and hemipenes and showing the differences. And I really like that. I've not seen that in a paper before, um, but it's so much more interesting than reading a really, really long, dry description of how they're different just to have a, at a glance a nice image. Um, 
a really cool image of a skull. Yeah, yeah. full on like three dimensional, <laughs> really excellent um, image. I loved it. I thought it was fascinating. But yeah, like basically the long, the long and short of this new snake, isn't it? Is that they really don't know anything about them except that they exist. Um, there's a section yeah. in the paper entitled Natural History, and essentially all it says is that one was discovered resting on a stone. Yes. So they made. So we presumed that they liked stones. <laughs> yeah, this one likes stones. The other one was found where there was some clay. So you can't really draw many conclusions from that. And one was found in the afternoon, and one was found at night. So they don't even well in the <laughs> evening. So they don't even know if they're nocturnal or diurnal. I don't know what the others oh. tantillas are. Um, well, I feel like when you, who knows if if they've got this now. You're going to say 62, the pupils. Sixty-two members of that species. Wow. Oh, uh, uh, sorry. Sixty-two species of that genus. Yeah. I mean, that leaves a lot of room for a lot of diversity, doesn't it? It does. So, I don't know. I did have a little look what possibly they might be mimicking with the uh, black and yellow stripes. Oh, yeah. And my best... I, I'm not particularly confident in this postulation either. Um, but... Possibly pygmy coral snake is nearby and is black and yellow. Cool. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It's a bit of a stretch. But, uh... Do you know, I reckon it would be a really cool study to just, like, actually formally analyse these colour patterns compared to other species to see, like, from the, you know, use, like, um... A, a model of predator vision and actually see whether or not you know how closely these animals appear to each other from the context of a bird's vision yeah i'd love to see someone well, you'd have to, yeah you'd have to split it up different predators too wouldn't you yeah but there's no break it down i mean that's got to be completely doable um i think so yeah i'd really like to see that i mean it's been done you know it's been done on smaller scales hasn't it yeah yeah but um yeah uh one other thing i thought was prudent to mention they did give precise locality information again in this paper mm. down to like exact gps coordinates i don't know how many meters but close um just worth mentioning so if there are any poachers out there check out the paper <laughs> <laughs> oh no i'm only joking man <laughs> yeah no but we could we could we could be a vehicle for that oh god don't by that merit you wouldn't do anything <laughs> Just, well, I suppose we haven't given out the the coordinates. No, but we've mentioned it. It's a really ugly snake and no one would ever want to buy yeah. it because it's so ugly. If I saw it in a vivarium... It smells of licorice and <laughs> I think everybody will hate it. If I saw it in a vivarium, I would chastise the owner. <laughs> no, I'm not paying a penny. <laughs> yeah. Get it out of my sight. <laughs> nah, but all joking aside, really, really cool paper. Um really grateful to the um authors for using the vehicle of prj to publish it because i you know we both love open access publishing i think it's yes obviously and not well, not everyone's P- in a position is very accessible and very easy to get into and there's so much this paper's not short either oh, there's no. so much detail in there yeah i mean it's, it's the, really good the level of description um in terms of the scalation and similar species and even um even the amount of detail they go into about the threats to the different um, environments and the um, the plant species that are present, you get a really, really, really good idea of what what these snakes require. Yeah, it, yeah. It, this paper could very easily be really useful to the IUCN as well when they come to um, 
assess the threats that this snake faces. Yeah, well, it's a critical starting point. I mean, we, you know, slightly, well, you know, describing species is is a critical first step, isn't it? Yeah. It really is. Do you know, one of the things which I saw was a threat to this um, kind of Andean dry forest is mm. that, um, sorry, yeah, yeah, Andean dry forest, uh, is narcotics plantations. Yeah. Well, it's that part of South America, isn't it? Yeah, it's not not something we've read as a threat to any of the other species that we've highlighted. But yeah, there you go. So another, yeah, yeah no, no good. No. Um, anything else to add about this paper? No, I don't think so. No. So I think we've kind of like really delved into both uh, aggressive and defensive mimicry um, we've had some caudal luring, some lingual luring. We've had a nice bit of um, malarian mimicry. Yeah. And then a really cool new species, which itself may well be a mimic. Too soon to say. Yeah. Who, who knows? But it's a cool looking stripy snake regardless. Yeah, I'm sure. That, I mean, I know there's, there's way more details to be discussed about mimicry in the future, but I, I think we've done a, a nice little start to it. Yeah. Yeah, so um, I guess that concludes episode eight of Herpetological Highlights. Yeah. Uh, as always, we'll put up all the papers we've mentioned uh, on the website, herphighlights.podbean.com, uh, along with all the multimedia things, all the videos we've mentioned, which this week is quite a few. Um, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at herphighlights at gmail.com. We're on Facebook facebook.com slash herp highlights we're on twitter at herp highlights uh yeah anything else any other ways of getting in touch with us about it isn't it no i mean we're you know in terms of listening to the podcast we're all about on various platforms and itunes and whatnot you know we're not, not particularly hard to find if you go looking yep so yeah if we've uh, misspoken uh please get in touch let us know um if we got anything wrong yeah let us know we'll, we'll publish corrections and if you've got any questions for us or comments we'd love to hear them um if we get questions we'll answer them in the episode next episode yeah 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 we'll we'll answer them as as promptly as we can with whatever episode is being recorded next yes yeah yeah, yeah that's true yeah because <laughs> not everything's recorded in as neat an order as you'd think yeah we are actually um <laughs> yeah <laughs> cool yeah well thank you very much for listening and uh hope to have you join us again in episode nine excellent thank you for listening The, does it have a common name? What's the common name? Let's use the common name. I, I doubt it has a common name because it's newly described. Oh, he's a common name. Uh, well, we can make one up. Uh, that's how that's how reptiles get their common names, isn't it? They don't go through any sort of committee. <laughs> we're pretty like birds. Yeah, we're common enough to make this decision. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna call it uh, the licorice snake. Oh yeah, okay, I like it because of its appearance. It looks like licorice. The Peruvian licorice snake. Okay, so this Peruvian licorice snake. Um, <laughs> I, oh no, this feels like this.
feels like vandalism 